we were on a boat off the coast of Phuket in Thailand, and there was this huge earthquake that happened, and there was a tsunami headed towards us. Hey everyone, welcome back to University. I'm Anne-Marie Chereso, your host. On today's show, I'm talking with Rahul Kokerni, a social entrepreneur who created and runs the Suki Project, a mental health advocacy and technology company that seeks to bridge the gap between mental wellness and cultural understanding. Suki means happy in Sanskrit, and that's what they exist to promote. And I'd like to start with a story from one of my favorite teachers, Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. In Vietnam, there are many people called boat people who leave the country in small boats. Often the boats are caught up in rough seas or storms. The people may panic and boats may sink, but if even one person aboard can remain calm, lucid, knowing what to do and what not to do, he or she can help the boat survive. His or her expression, face, voice communicates clarity and calmness, and people have trust in that person. They will listen to what he or she says. One such person can save the lives of many. And this is how I see Rahul. Rahul knows how to stay calm in the eye of a storm, trust whatever is occurring, stay focused on his goal, and remain flexible and agile when conditions change. And now more than ever, he is calling upon his talents, skills, and work ethic combined with his meditation practice and a deep trust in himself and the world to pursue his passion and fulfill this vision to build a bridge between people's cultural background and mental health. So let's join my conversation as Raul shares how his mental health advocacy work began and opens up about the work that led to the formation of his current company, The Suki Project. My career beforehand was very much a traditional global health career in international development. And um, it was really, though, while working in the field that I I grew an appreciation for social entrepreneurship and um, looking at social entrepreneurs in different countries and them creating these organizations that weren't dependent on foundations or grants to keep running. And so I got very interested in the idea of social entrepreneurship. And that's when I, I went to business school because normally I had a clinical psychology background as well as a healthcare and systemic background. Then when I was at business school, that's really when I started learning different business skill sets and got my interest in consulting. But MIT was was definitely a pressure cooker. Um, in fact, there were three suicides my first year there. Um, it had the highest suicide rate in the world. And so that reinvigorated my interest in mental health. So it was there. Then I realized that once I got the offer from McKinsey, that what I would do was actually not go directly from school to that job. But in fact, I asked them for a year off to focus on passion projects. And I wanted the sign-on bonus up front. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so they let me do that. And, uh, and so during that year off, that was the journey I did to India. And I actually remember my mentor at MIT, I asked him, I'm about to 
to take some time off after I graduate, what should I do? And without skipping a beat, he was like, you need to do Vipassana. <laughs> and, uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And so I said, sure. And I've always practiced meditation. Um, just my parents are from Bombay. And so we grew up with yoga meditation as, as part of our childhood. It was very informal. It was very much not a regular practice. Um, a lot of it was app driven. And so to actually go to, into an ashram and do the 10 days and do it for 10 hours a day in a very minimal environment. I was sleeping on a stone slab and getting up at 4.30 every morning. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it was a straight Buddhist experience, Whoa. like monk experience, yeah. And I was like probably the only one under the age of like 50 there. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was not a resort by any means. <laughs> and, no, uh, th- these are not yeah. resorts. That's Yeah, yeah. And so having that experience, I really enjoyed it thought it was very transformative, cathartic. Then I went back into the work in Kenya, knowing that I had to go back to McKinsey. And McKinsey for me was always a means to an end. I always knew I wanted to start my own company. I was um, both looking for the inspiration on what to start it about, as well as I needed some money to start it. And so, yeah, I was graduating, I was broke. And so that allowed me to just start saving money as soon as I got to McKinsey. And then after about a year and a half, I was able to leave and then start my own company. So the whole time along, this was part of your plan. Like it was a stepping um, stone. McKin- yeah, yeah. McKinsey was definitely a stepping stone. I, I knew from the beginning because I'm, I'm very much, uh, it's interesting too, because they're like the, the definition of like business and capitalism. I'm very much like not a <laughs> capitalist. Um, but at the same time, I understood the value it would have. And I knew also that if I wanted to start my own company and if we did want to get investors, they would want to see some check marks. And um, my resume prior really read like someone who was nonprofit oriented and mission driven, but not necessarily someone you would want to give money to (laughs) and (laughs) and would know how to put an ROI on it. And so the McKinsey is a very much like universal stamp of approval. So that was another thing I wanted (laughs) was just be like, all right, let me get the validity. Let me gain the skill sets and also let me get enough money where I can leave this job and then start my own company. Yeah, this is fascinating to me. Do you mind me asking how old you are? Yeah, I'm 33. So you're really young. And mm-hmm. and it sounds like from a very early time in your life, in, in your career life, you had such clarity because this mm-hmm. path was laid out, right? You had to see, you had to know where you were going to create this very clear path of, McKinsey, get my resume set up so I can get money so I can have my vision fulfilled. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to do all these other things in the meantime to sort of lay the groundwork or plant the seeds for Mm -hmm. my future success. So I want to understand more of like, when did that clarity arise in you? When did you, Hmm. when did you know what, what that vision was, what your future self Mm -hmm. wanted so that you knew how to plant the seeds for that success? You know, to me, it makes a lot more sense looking retrospectively, you know, for me, like when in the moment, I usually am just looking forward to being like, what's the most interesting thing I can do next? And then just try to do that. And knowing that it's all kind of building on each other. And so for me, like, 
I actually was very much interested in global health and community health ever since I was a child and I was going to India a lot and seeing like those really vast healthcare disparities. And so I knew that was like one of my interests. And then I was in global health for a while, not knowing that I was going to go into business. And it was really just while I was working in the field that I saw and I started meeting other entrepreneurs and and looking at the work they were doing. That inspired me. Oh, I want to go kind of into global healthcare work or go into the business and, and mix it with the work I'm doing right now. It was really there at business school that I was like, I want to start my own company. And then I started thinking, okay, well, how do I start my own company with the offer from McKinsey and things like that? That all just became clear. Okay, like, why don't I use this as a stepping stone to, to start my own company? And it was really at McKinsey, I got the idea when I was seeing my therapist. She was based out of Oregon, and this is when I was in Seattle. And she was a Caucasian woman. And I, as I was talking to her about the nuances of the caste system, and my parents arranged marriage, I could see that she didn't completely understand what that meant in terms of my household and my upbringing. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder who out there is really building that bridge between people's cultural backgrounds as well as their their mental wellness solutions. And I didn't see anyone in that space at the time. And so that inspired me to start this company. And so I was like, okay, now I have an idea. We're in we're going back to like my clinical psych roots and the meditation roots, all of that. And, and we're bringing in culture and then let's, let's start creating this company. And even within the last year, that company has been a very winding road on where we are going to, to end up focused. But actually now with the, the pandemic, we've had just such a shift in focus as well as a lot more attention because we were already in employee wellness, we were already doing telemeditation, and we were linking it to analytics, and so that we can actually use pulse surveys, emotional wellness surveys, and visualize the data in a dashboard for management, and then take that data and give it to meditators, corporate meditation coaches, who can then lead teams in weekly sessions based on their real-time feedback. And so that's our main product that we're offering right now. And so like we're, we're starting to get more and more clients and we've been struggling to get our first client for over a year. And so, and now we suddenly have like 10. Because of coronavirus? Yeah, yeah, largely from people transitioning to, to working from home and then having that, that anxiety as well as that transition. A lot of managers are looking for ways to help bring their team together. And so that's how we've started to get a lot more attention. And that's also led to us thinking through other products and what we can do. Like right now, we're thinking about creating a free app with these like bite-sized little recordings of different mindfulness techniques for frontline workers and medical workers mm -hmm. um, that they can listen to on their shifts um, if they need an energy boost or they need a, to focus more. And so we're working with one yogi on creating that one. And we still have those roots too of celebrating cultural diversity. And we, we still do um, therapist matching and we've open sourced a, a database of over 500 therapists from all different cultural backgrounds in the US where people can filter that through insurance or, or 
um, language barriers, things like that. And so they can find someone who's like a Filipino therapist in, in Texas or something like that. I make up over here that you just have like this vast well of ideas <laughs> and solutions to solve these beautiful human challenges. I don't like to use the word problems so much, but challenges. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you keep yourself inspired, right? You had like tapped into that inspiration because this, it sounds like there's all these little sparks. You get sparked Mm -hmm. by this therapist that you were working with and this idea of cultural identity and matching therapists in that way to clients. Um, And then this whole host of other ideas coming through. And at the same time, what I'm noticing is you you seem really agile, like you guys can mm-hmm. shift on a dime. So speak more to, to some of that. Yeah. And part of that is <laughs> we're agile because we're forced to be um, in the sense that we've, me and my co-founder, we, we've jumped completely full on in. Also, like we haven't had a paycheck in over a year. And so like we have to make it work. Essentially, that's how I usually like to work, cut off the parachute. And, uh, you know, as you just see your bank account going down and you're like, okay, I have five months to make this thing into something that can pay me a salary. Not only that, pay the salary of five over or workers and have enough of an ROI to be like attractive to angel investors. It's a tall order. And so, you know, and so we're very much, we're, we're adapting because we're, we're just empathetic and listening to what, what the market's telling us. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're constantly doing experiments. So we're running digital ads, like with different wording, with different solutions to different market segments, trying to figure out like, what's that magic combination of like, this is the right product for this market. And this is the impact we're creating where it all lines up in a way where like we can scale this as a business. So this is a scary time for so many people because the world is in this giant state of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I imagine you like me and, and many other meditators understand the significance of a meditation practice in the face of dealing with fear. And I'm wondering for you now what what is your relationship to fear and how is your meditation practice supporting you as you grow this business in this time of uncertainty? Yeah, absolutely. Relationship to fear. That's an interesting one. Maybe you don't have one. Yeah. You seem pretty fearless. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think the older I get, definitely the more fear I have, um, which is unfortunate because I remember when I was in my mid-20s, we were on when the, the prefrontal cortex wasn't fully developed. Yeah, right, right, exactly. We were on a boat off the coast of Phuket in Thailand, and there was this huge earthquake that happened, and there was a tsunami heading towards us. And I remember everyone on the boat had to make their final calls. <laughs> and yeah, it was pretty insane. But totally. I remember, like, really just vividly remembering how not scared I was. And to the point of being like, yeah, it's, well, it's, you know, I've had a really good ride. <laughs> and, and, and really? Like now, no yeah. fear at all? I mean, the, there was a, definitely some trepidation, but not... You weren't really, in the grip of it. Right. Yeah, like, people were getting very emotional. Like, you know, our captain was crying. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, so you were able I, to stay steady amidst right. all of that. Was that before or after your Vipassana retreat? 
Oh, that was way before. That was like six, seven years ago. Wow. I'm fascinated Mm -hmm. with this part of you. You know, there's this literally a flipping tsunami is coming. (laughs) And in the eye of the storm, you're able to stay what it sounds like, like an anchor, like somewhat Mm -hmm. even keeled. And by the way, you're still here. So now we know what the outcome was. Right. So the hardest part about that that moment was that so the ambiguity of it was very high because we were just waiting while all the islands around us had been evacuated. And it was the waiting that was the hardest part because we waited for about six hours. For, on a for, boat? Yeah, on the boat. Because they said that if um, we went to the islands, that's when the actual, the waves crash. So it's actually safer to be on the water than um, <laughs> on the islands around. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. I'm so, feeling unstable just listening to you. <laughs> so we were we were very much just waiting on this boat. And what ended up happening was when there's an earthquake um, that big, you have a tectonic shift. What happened was there's two ways the, the tectonic plates can shift. Usually they, they hit each other and that friction creates a wave. Here, which is rare, they have a parallel shift where it actually doesn't create a wave because um, it, they shift next to each other. And so we got very lucky. And even just a few years prior to that, I think tens of thousands of people in that exact area had died from a tsunami in Thailand, from an earthquake just as big. Wow. And um, this time we dodged the bullet and the tsunami never came. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. This is a perfect metaphor for I think a little bit of what's going on right now with coronavirus and how, you know, and and even in a more micro way in our own personal lives, right? Because we see the tsunami coming, this this illness sort of coming at us and we're all sort of bracing ourselves for, you know, and protecting ourselves and we're in fear of what might happen. Some of us are in the moment experiencing it. Some of us are waiting for what possibly could happen just on a micro level, like, am I going to get sick? Or a macro level, like, how is this going to impact my economic self and my well-being and my, my physical well-being, my mental, my emotional, my stability out in the world? So all of that, that's, that's like the tsunami coming at us. And for those of us who aren't yet hit by anything directly, mm-hmm. can we stay centered in the eye of the storm in the same way that you did? Because mm-hmm. we don't actually know yet what's going to play no. out. Right. Yeah. And that uncertainty is what's really, I think, hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And do you struggle with uncertainty at all? Because you have this, like, you don't know what's going to happen in this new startup that you're doing. And are you the same way with with your business as you were with that tsunami and in your life? I think so. And that's why I was thinking, like, before when you were talking about, oh, I had it all planned out. I'm like, well, kind of, but not, you know, in a sense, because I... I always have the mentality of you don't know what's going to come next. And it's hard to also, which is a Buddhist philosophy, it's hard to determine whether something that comes is good or bad, you know? And so it's just like, yeah, this is happening. Or, you know, and I try to remind myself that if, you know, I apply to something, we don't get it. You know, you're going to feel that pang of disappointment, of rejection, and then you have to be like, well, you don't know what other opportunities this just opens. And that certainly was the case for like applying to schools or, or, you know, 
I think I feel like in a startup, you're constantly putting yourself out there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and um, and that's just part of it. And so for me, I don't think the uncertainty definitely affects me that much. And I think part of it is also, though, I think that <laughs> I have a pretty like I've been privileged and and worked hard and I have a pretty strong background to fall on if I need to. Um, where I think I'm like very employable if I need to be. You know, I have like two masters from MIT and Tufts Medical and I worked at McKinsey in the UN. Like if I can't get a job, I don't know who can. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it sounds like you operate a lot from trust. Exactly. So I think like worst case, you know, I'll just my bank account will be empty and I need to find a job and like I'm usually at that place anyways, so it's not that bad of a place to be, <laughs> you know? So it's very much like, okay, like that's not that bad of a scenario. <laughs> it's not that bad, right? Hey guys, you're still here. I hope that means you're enjoying this episode as much as me. And I want you to know I really appreciate you. And today I have a gift for you. You see, right before coronavirus hit, I launched my new brand and I was really excited to launch my new online membership community for young people where we gather weekly online for 30 minutes to practice meditation, connect with one another, share, and get some live coaching from me to help navigate everyday life stresses. With all that's currently going on in the world, we're all so much more stressed and likely way more disconnected these days. So I've created a space to connect intimately and authentically so we can support one another as we navigate these crazy times. You know, originally I was offering these memberships at a low monthly rate so it could be accessible to everyone. But in the spirit of all that's occurring in the world right now, I feel inclined to offer this for free to any young adult in or just out of college. So if you or someone you know could use a place to be seen, supported, heard, and held in community of like-minded folks, I hope you'll take advantage of this invitation. Like I said, it's a monthly membership. You'll have four opportunities to connect per month, and you can drop in whenever you like, no obligation. To register now, head over to annemariechiresso.me or text meditate to 47 Four seven four seven, and I'll be on the lookout for you. Welcome back to University. You're listening to my conversation with social entrepreneur Raul Kulkarni. We've been talking about his trust-based approach to leadership, the fascinating path that resulted, and the harrowing story of his near-death experience in Thailand. Let's rejoin the conversation as I ask Raul to tell me more about the goals that drive his work. The goal for me, like it constantly changes every day, but the goal is, can I create something where I I feel like it's, it's something that's really 
benefiting people and at the same time I'm able to live off of it mm. and that's like that's the goal right now so it's and not like I have like huge aspirations of becoming like some big tech billionaire but at the same time it would be great to have a salary especially after 16 months of not having one <laughs> so how do you know when you'll have been successful at reaching your that goal can I create something and support myself so like the thing about what I've noticed in the human condition is as soon as you hit a goal, you immediately make another one. And so the bar of success will constantly change. You know, like right now we just got our first paying client. Then we were like, all right, how do we get 10? And then once you hit 10, you're like, all right, how do you get this? Right. And so like, I don't think it'll ever feel necessarily satiated. That said, I try not to be as reliant on the outcome. So like whether or not it actually happens is less important versus comparative, like what was the journey like getting there? What did we learn? There's a very realistic goal of like, can you support yourself or not? Especially the older I get, that that becomes one where I'm no longer being supported by anyone else. And so that one is much more just tied to survival if I'm getting to a point where, you know, I only have a couple hundred dollars in my bank account and can't afford next month's rent, then that's an actual like, okay, well, I didn't hit that goal. And if you don't hit that goal, that means you need to figure out how to get money some way. Yeah. There's a giant money game tied with success because of the world that we live in, the reality of the world that we live in. I really appreciate that you named that you want to create something that can impact other human beings and simultaneously support yourself because both of those are important. I mean, you can't possibly support others if you're not supporting yourself, right? So you fundamentally, that's what the meditation, a meditation practice is about is like, can we support ourselves through our meditation mm-hmm. practice? So we're available to those relationships that are and others that are important to us. But I think what's interesting to me is thinking about this, how so many of us in the world today get lost in chasing the money as success. Mm -hmm. I appreciate how you have it flipped. You said, can I create something? So first of all, I really liked the way you phrased that because it was a question. It's like, it's like a little challenge. Like, can I do this? You know, I really, really appreciate that. What advice do you have to give other young social entrepreneurs who want to create change in the world to stay focused on the goal of creating change and not getting caught up in mm-hmm. you know, success having to mean a particular financial outcome? I feel like there's, there's a couple ways to approach that. One is there's just purely from a logical standpoint, which I think a lot of people get lost in, is like we know that after a certain amount of money, the incremental gain in happiness is really minimal. You know, there's no difference if you make 80,000 versus 120 versus 150, really. It's all kind of your, your life stays the same and you adjust in those incremental changes. So the goal of constantly trying to hit like a monetary number that's greater, that, you know, just logically shouldn't be yeah, <laughs> how, how you define success. And for me, my my entire experience has always been yeah, the more money I make, usually the, the, the more strings that comes with. <laughs> and, um, it's true. And, yeah. And so it's actually, you know, even though we are in this phase of the company where we're very much struggling to, to still survive as 
a company, I'm very much thankful at the same time because I know the more success we get, just the harder it becomes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot easier to manage a company that's worth, you know, a few thousand dollars than a few million dollars. And uh, and so the the level of stress, the level of responsibility, all of that will just get harder. And so, so yeah. that's something I try to keep in mind to be like, you know what, I need to like take advantage of those days when I have nothing to do, um, uh, <laughs> where where no one really cares too much whether or not I'm like online this second, um, because I, I know you know I've certainly been in positions of of large responsibility where even if you're you're gone to the bathroom, someone notices. It. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm also not that type A, even though, which is a little bit ironic because I am the CEO. I think like, I don't like necessarily fast paced competitive environments. And I tend to find myself in those as well. Though I think that's largely based on how I was raised to just constantly, you know, get all those A pluses. And, yeah. uh, and so I think that that is something that I will always kind of be a friction internally. But in terms of advice that I would, I would give to other social entrepreneurs, um, it's one that's been said a lot. It's certainly not original by any means, but start with why. Why are you doing it? And one thing that I, I've always asked myself with every position I've had is, would I do this for free? And if the answer is no, then I have to ask myself, then why am I doing it? And that answer has to be good enough for me to still do it because you are donating your time and your energy, which is your most precious thing. I think that's what's allowed me to to have a career that I really enjoyed, but also it is one that has not made a lot of money. <laughs> so. Well, it sounds like you're already answering that question, right? Because, you know, would I do this for free? Any social entrepreneur knows you start out doing everything for free. Yeah, absolutely. Essentially. Yeah. So what is your why? Um, I think one of the reasons I started this was the idea that the cultures that communities of color, especially Asian cultures, because that's the one of the first reasons why I started this company, they came from, have thousands of years, millennia of practice of focusing on finding mental resilience and harmony. And it's only been recently that there has been such a drive to work hard and, and to accomplish, and it's become so competitive, and, and the drive to make money is so high that there has been a really big loss of, to that those roots. And if you look at like Chinese culture, there's like Taoism, Taoism, Buddhism, Indian culture with Hinduism and yoga, and a lot of Asians right now, they're very disconnected to those roots. And in mental health is so taboo and so stigmatized that there's very much, they don't ever talk about it. It's very much not embraced. And it leads to a lot of people suffering in silence. Wow. For me, this was very much a way to, to add a voice to kind of say, you know what? You don't need to always just focus on grades or income, mm -hmm. but actually there's there's a lot more, and we do have a really rich culture that has been focused on on mental harmony. And so 
I started this as really a, as a way to reconnect a lot of these communities to those original roots. Mm, so beautiful. A really right. heart-centered mission. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, and finding out how to make make money is always a, you know, always a challenge. <laughs> I have a belief that the universe supports good things in the world and if you are doing something that's of service, you get repaid. It's tricky to figure it out, but you eventually get there. So I have complete faith in you because <laughs> I think what you're up to is amazing. I have immense gratitude for your vision, for your what it is you want to create in the world. And I'm having the thought the world needs more just like you. That's Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. One of them is, what has coronavirus taught you about you? Um, I think it has reignited that kind of uh, healthcare passion that I have, that when there is something that is as infectious and that is as life-changing as this virus, you know, I was immediately drawn to it and, and, and thinking about, well, how can I channel what's going on right now to, to help people in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so that was, that was something that I was, I was surprised by how quickly I went back to, okay, how can we shift our focus right now of what we're doing to incorporate the world as it's changing so rapidly. Yeah, it's beautiful. We're having lots of conversations at our dinner table. I don't know what your dinner table is like, but about leadership these days, there's all sorts of mixed reviews about the current leadership. And we talk about what are the qualities? What do you think the qualities of a good leader are? Yeah. And it's interesting too, because my partner, she's like a news junkie. You know, we live in the heart of we live a mile from the White House, so mm-hmm. it's, it's hard not to, to, to be in those conversations, especially in D.C. Like, I'm, I'm very active uh, in terms of activism and, and things like that, but at the same time, I'm very not political, and I, I feel like the news cycle tends to be pretty toxic, and so I don't like wa- listening to the news or watching the news. I try to, to stay away from putting Trump's name in my mouth. Um, and so I actually don't know who the biggest leaders are really rising up right now. And like, you know, besides just what I hear through the grapevine, that said, in terms of general leadership qualities, I've always loved the concept of kind of service-based leadership that you are you are there to to lead to help other people and um and true leadership really is creating a platform for others to excel on that mm-hmm. is always love that yeah yeah that's that's kind of been my go-to and in fact a lot of times when i see a good leader it's usually they don't want to be the leader it's they were they were doing it because no one else would or they're they're, they're driven by something internally to do it but they don't necessarily want want it for the the other reasons other people want to be in that spotlight. I've definitely been a leader in a lot of organizations I've been a part of. Um, I was in a 
a rock band for a long time. I was the band leader. Um, I'm still in a rock band right now, but I'm the band wow, leader. Fun. Yeah, and I'm a guitarist. It's one of those thankless positions, right? It's not like you get more recognition or pay or anything. You are doing it because someone needs to do it. <laughs> and uh, I sort of have that same approach right now to leading this company. It's not necessarily I want to be the CEO, but it is a lot about well no one else is doing this so i need to do it yeah and um and i do hope that you know other people can see me doing it and then be inspired to join i think one quality that i see in you as a leader is inspiring others like one thing you do really well is light others up so yeah i just want to name that and put that out there and thank you for being that light (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, I definitely, um, I'm a convener. I'm very extroverted. I like tribes and I like uh, groups and I throw a lot of parties <laughs> and, uh, and dinners. And so certainly that brings me joy, just bringing people together. Well, that whole conversation brought me a ton of joy. That was my conversation with Raul Kulkarni. You can find links to his incredibly important work in the notes for this episode. You know, I remember the day we recorded the episode. I was in some overwhelm in my life and pretty stressed with all the shelter in place and coronavirus chaos and how it was impacting our home. I wasn't even sure I was in a good space to have the interview. And after we hung up, I remember feeling completely lit up and inspired and had a ton of energy and excitement. And this really reminded me of the story of Thich Nhat Hanh and the Vietnamese people in the boat, the power of our interconnection and how important it is for each of us to truly take responsibility for the energy we bring. It can be very easy for us to get swept up in the tsunami of shelter-in-place and coronavirus chaos out in the world. But each of us has the power to stay centered in the eye of the storm, and we can each have a massive impact on one another. This week, I invite you to explore this one key question with me and allow Raul to inspire you too. How are you being with what is occurring? Can we stay centered in the eye of the coronavirus or whatever comes our way? You know, ultimately, it's this idea of uncertainty that we're all struggling with the most. And truth be told, we just don't know what's going to come next. It reminds me of another Buddhist fable, if you'll indulge me, just another story. One day in late summer, a farmer was working in his field with an old sick horse. The farmer felt compassion for the horse and desired to lift its burden. So he let the horse loose to go in the mountains and live out the rest of his life. Soon after, neighbors from the nearby villages visited, offering their condolences and said, what a shame. Now your only horse is gone. How unfortunate for you. You must be very sad. How will you live, work the land and prosper? The farmer calmly replied, who could say, we shall see. Two days later, the old horse came back rejuvenated after meandering in the mountainside while eating the wild grasses. Returning with him were 12 new and healthy horses which followed the old horse into the corral, 
word got out into the village of the farmer's good fortune, and it wasn't long before people stopped by to congratulate him on his good luck. How fortunate you are, they exclaimed. You must be very happy. The farmer calmly and softly said, Who could say? We shall see. At daybreak on the next morning, the farmer's only son set off to attempt to train the new wild horses. But the farmer's son was thrown to the ground and broke his leg. One by one, the villagers arrived to bemoan the father's latest misfortune. Oh, what a tragedy you've had. Your son won't be able to help you farm with a broken leg. You'll have to do all the work yourself. How will you survive? You must be very sad, they said once again. Calmly going about his usual business, the farmer answered, Who could say? We shall see. Several days later, a war broke out. The emperor's men arrived in the village, demanding that young men come with them to be conscripted into the emperor's army. As it happened, the farmer's son was deemed unfit because of his broken leg. What very good fortune you have, the villagers exclaimed as their own young sons were being marched away. You must be so happy. Who could say? We shall see, replied the farmer as he headed off to work in his field alone. As time went on, the broken leg healed, but the son was left with a slight limp. Again, the neighbors came to pay their condolences. Oh, what bad luck you had, too bad for you, but the farmer replied simply, Who could say? We shall see. As it turned out, the other young village boys died in the war, and the farmer and his son were the only able-bodied men capable of working the village lands. The farmer became wealthy and was very generous to the villagers. They said, oh, how fortunate we are. You must be very happy. To which the farmer softly and calmly replied, who could say? We shall see. And I'm feeling a little bit that way about what's going on in the world right now. Maybe we could all walk around just remembering Who could say? We shall see. So I'm inviting you to use this time to notice what's getting stirred up in you and pay attention to how you're being with your experience. Are you letting it take you down and under or are you rising above the challenge? I know this can be an extremely challenging time, but resilience is about bouncing back and building our awareness. You know, these times we're hearing so many stories like the farmer. We're all navigating the unexpected. And the invitation is for us to truly stay centered and open to all the possibilities in the midst of this uncertain time, as we know not what the gifts may come as a result. This time of shelter in place can be a time of deep practice for each of us to get to know ourselves just a bit more. And maybe, just maybe, even build that resilience and compassion muscle just a little more. You know, our meditation practice is meant to support us in navigating challenging times. Can we find our center in the center of the storm like Raul was able to do in the tsunami and how he continues to do that in his life today as he follows his passion and fulfills his purpose fearlessly? He's a great example of what it means to trust. You know, I believe this is what is really going to make a difference in the world and in our lives right now. And as you continue to go about your days, let rules, inquiry inspire you too. And remember to ask yourself, what is the most interesting thing I can do next? How's that show up for you in life in quarantine and in business and in school and in relationships?
Okay, that's all for now. May you continue to breathe easily, take it one moment at a time, and keep doing the thing that you love with the people you love. And I'll look forward to seeing you next time. University's executive producer is Tyler Green of thestoryproducer.com. This podcast is also produced and edited by Katie Clarkson. The university team also includes Marcia Craig, Ashwath Narayanan from Culture Media, Adam Harris, and Kim Redding. University is a production of Bring It Home, founded by Anne-Marie Chiresso. You can find out more at A-N-N-M-A-R-I-E-C-H-E-R-E-S-O dot me. Or follow us at Anne-Marie Chiresso on Instagram. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast app and write us a review. It really does help us have more of an impact in the world. Thanks so much for listening in, and I look forward to seeing you next time. And I wanted the sign-on bonus up front. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs>